chapter 4. As we saw last week, the theme of Mark's gospel is Jesus the servant. Mark really wants to emphasize and demonstrate how much of a servant Jesus was during his earthly ministry. Now, the whole idea of being a servant, I think, is really at the heart of Christianity. And Jesus had much to say about his people uh, being servants to each other and to those around them. Of course, we realize that servanthood doesn't come naturally. We are selfish by nature. And so we really need to learn how to be servants. And it really helps to have an example to follow. Jesus is the ultimate example of a servant for us to look at and learn from. Now, because Mark wants to present Jesus as the servant, he doesn't give us a genealogy like the other gospel writers do. Because really, the genealogy of a servant is unimportant. Also, because Mark is emphasizing the servanthood of Christ, which is action, his is the most action-packed, fast-paced of the Gospels. Mark doesn't spend a lot of time on the sermons or parables of Jesus, as Mar uh, Matthew and Luke do, because he really wants to focus more on what Jesus did as opposed to what he said. So he that's why his gospel is so action-packed, because he's focusing on the things that Jesus did more than on what he said. Really, when we come to chapter 4, though, he does give us a couple of Jesus' parables and their related teachings. A parable is really a, a story taken from real life that helps communicate a, a, a moral or spiritual truth. The Greek word parabole literally means to cast or to lay alongside and the idea is you're taking an earthly story and you're laying it alongside a spiritual truth to illustrate it usually however we're going to see that a parable can have a twofold purpose it can both reveal truth and at the same time conceal truth you say well how's that possible well it all depends on the heart that is receiving it it all depends on the kind of heart that is hearing and receiving these parables. Now, Mark 4 corresponds to Matthew 13. And around this time, we are about halfway into Jesus' ministry. He ministered for about three, three and a half years. We're about halfway through the ministry of Christ at this time. And you have to realize that up until this point, Jesus' teaching has been pretty simple and straightforward. But now he gets cryptic. Now he begins to hide truth from people. You say, well, why? Well, because many had rejected the truth that he was giving. And after a point, you know, God will no longer hand you the truth if you keep slapping it out of his hand and, and, and rejecting it. So at this point, Jesus Christ begins now to hide the truth of God from those who have a hard heart. Remember, Jesus never he hides truth from anyone who has an open heart, who is spiritually receptive to, to receiving the truth. Uh, he will always give people who are open to God's truth, who want to know God's will. He will always make sure that they receive that truth. But it's the people that harden their hearts, as we have seen so often in, in, in Mark's gospel, even up to this point. Those that had committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, as Jesus talked about last week, where the Holy Spirit was working through Christ, presenting the truth of God, presenting Him as the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And people were rejecting it, even claiming that the power that He did things uh, through was of the devil. Uh, you know, even though the Bible says very clearly that 
that the Spirit of God was upon him and that the Spirit of God was working through him to bring people to, a, to an awareness of his deity, his messiahship, and so on. But they rejected that. Many said he was doing these things under the power of Satan. And so they committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, many of them by this point. And they had, as Paul said, they had rejected the love of the truth that they might be saved. Therefore, as Paul said in Second Thessalonians, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. If you reject the truth, you open yourself up to satanic deception. That's why it's so important to live up to the light or the truth that you have. When God gives you truth, embrace it. Go with it. Of course, as the children of God, we've already done that. All right? I'm talking more now about people who are hearing the gospel and have not yet received Christ. As God gives them more truth, as God continues to bring other Christians into their lives to, uh, to share with them about what God has said and so on, if they keep rejecting the truth, they keep hardening their hearts, and if that continues, they will at one point pass the spiritual point of no return. In other words, there's no longer any hope for them to receive uh, the gospel. Uh, they have at that point committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus is now going to kind of speak in code. He's going to start speaking in spiritual code. And only those people with a spiritual decoder are going to be able to understand. And the spiritual decoder is the Holy Spirit. Even as Paul said, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him. Neither can he know them, for they are spiritually discerned. May I paraphrase? Spiritually coded. And you have to have the decoding equipment to receive the message of God. It's not that you can't hear the words. You just can't really interact with it and really uh, understand on a spiritual level what's being said. And so it says in chapter 4 now, as he, Mark does focus on a couple of Jesus' parables and their corresponding teachings, he said, and again he began to teach by the sea. This is the Sea of Galilee, of course. And a great multitude was gathered to him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. Because you can get the picture. He's off a few yards from shore in a boat, and this big crowd is there gathered on the seashore. They're all facing him, and he is teaching them. And it's interesting, in that part of the world there, the acoustics are pretty good. Of course, water is a natural amplifier. Uh, if you've ever been around a lake and you've done you swim, swam and things in the lake, uh, and you speak, uh, water kind of carries sound. I don't know if it just bounces off or what, but it, it, it's a good conductor of sound. And so uh, Jesus was preaching probably to 15,000, 20,000 people here. And they were hearing him, I think, just fine. And he taught them many things by parables and said to them in his teaching, listen. Now, the Lord comes to you and says, listen. That's what I'm about to say. You think you'd listen? I know I would. He said, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. Now, of course, Jesus used illustrations that they were all familiar with. They were living in an agrarian society. They were very used to sowing, cultivating, reaping, uh, working with animals. And all of his parables and illustrations were, were agricultural in nature, agrarian, because that's where they were coming from. And it could very well be that there was a man at that point who was sowing in his field, and Jesus could even have pointed to him and said, Listen, behold, a man went forth to sow. And what they would do is they would take a bag of seed, throw it across their shoulder, 
have it open on the one end, of course, and as they would walk up and down the furrows of their field, they would just take seed, handfuls of seed, and they would actually broadcast, is the actual Greek term. They would cast it out broadcasting as they went, and it would just scatter everywhere. And it would typically fall on four different kinds of soil, and that's what he is getting at. And it happened, verse 4, as he sowed, that some fell by the wayside, and the birds of the air came and devoured it. The wayside, of course, was the pathway that separated the fields. The fields in, in Israel were, were uh, sectioned off by pathways, okay, which were just dirt paths that had gotten so beaten down by people walking on them. And, of course, the hot sun in that area of the world, very hot, would bake that dirt because it was never cultivated or, or broken up. It was hard as concrete. Any seed that would fall on this pathway, this footpath or this wayside, would not be able to penetrate the soil. And the birds of the air were often, they knew what the farmers were doing. They were circling above, waiting for some of this seed to fall on these areas. And they would come down and eventually just eat the seed. Some fell, verse 5, on stony, stony ground, where it did not have much earth. And immediately... It sprang up because it had no depth of earth, but when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. Stony soil. Um, not soil with a lot of rocks in it, because they would have taken those out already uh, in preparing the soil for planting. Uh, this was a reference to limestone bedrock that would be under the surface of the soil. Some places it would come up pretty close to the surface, maybe, I don't know, six, eight inches, deep enough where the plow couldn't detect it when he was, you know, breaking up the soil, getting it ready for planting, but it was there. Any seed that fell on the shallow soil would germinate, and as the, as the roots would go down, it would hit this limestone bedrock, which was only a few inches below the soil, and because it couldn't go down any farther, all the growing energy was, was directed upwards. And these plants would shoot up faster than any others. In fact, they would dwarf the surrounding crops and, and give the appearance of being uh, extra healthy and vigorous. But of course, because it was shallow soil, it couldn't hold the moisture because the hot sun, that part of the world, the sun gets, uh, it gets you know, into the, into the 115s, 20s uh, out there. It's an arid climate. The soil was too shallow to retain moisture. And so when the sun came up, it would scorch these plants because their roots couldn't go deep enough to get moisture, and they would wither and die. Verse 7 says, And some seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. The farmer would try to get all the weeds, all the thorns and things out of the soil before he would plant. But you'd always have some of these very small, fibrous roots of these thorns, thistles, weeds, and remember now, they were indigenous to the area. When you sow a, a cultivated crop into an area, you're, that's a, a foreign substance, okay? The roots of these weeds, that, they were indigenous to that area. They had a stronger foothold on that ground than any cultivated crop could. And so when they would sow the seed, as the, the crops began to grow, so would these weeds. They would begin to grow, and they would grow faster and they're stronger. They would choke out those plants so that they never came to fruitfulness. But other seed fell on good ground and yielded a crop that sprang up, increased, and produced some 30-fold, some 60, and some 100. Praise the Lord, there's good ground there, right? 
Uh, they tell me, I'm not a farmer, never done any farming, but they say that a typical yield would be 8 to 1. So you know, a typical crop would be 8 times larger than the seed that you sowed. So a 30-fold return is awesome. 60, incredible, 100, miraculous. And he's going to talk about this in relation to the kingdom in just a minute. So let's continue. And he said to them, he who has ears to hear, let, let him hear. Um, don't make the mistake, guys. He's not saying only those of you who have been given ears by God to hear are going to hear. No, he is saying those of you who have spiritual ears to hear because you have a heart that's open to the truth of God, listen to what I'm saying. The rest of these guys, they're not, they don't have a clue because they don't want to have a clue. They've fought the truth their whole life. And, and, and usually it's because they don't want to bow the knee to Christ. They don't want to have to answer to anyone. They want to be the master of their own destiny. They want to be the captain of their ship. You know, and you see that. And that, that really is the heart of things like atheism. and all. You know, it's not that people really can't comprehend there's a God. I mean, look at the, everywhere you look, you see the, his handiwork and creation and so on. But at the heart of atheism is really a desire not to have to bow the knee to God and answer to him. And it's not to have to, to, to live your life in such a way as that you realize that someday you're going to stand before the creator of the whole world, of the whole universe, and you're going to have to give an account based on how you lived. There's a lot of people that can deal with a creator, but not a judge. They may accept the creator as long as they don't have to stand before him and ha have him be their judge. That's why man rejects God, by the way. So Jesus said, those of you who have spiritual ears to hear, because you have an open heart, listen to what I'm saying. But when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parable. And he said to them, to you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside, all things come in parables, so that seeing they may see and not, not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. And we'll talk about that more in a second, but let me just go back to verse 11, where he said, To you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. We've talked about this Greek word before. It's mysterion. And it's a word that means something that has been hidden, something that has been, we think of a mystery as something that is not known. It may never be knowable. Okay? But the Greek word here is a word that means something that was hidden, that was a mystery, but now is being supernaturally revealed. That's the idea. It's a secret that God is revealing because it, would, it takes a revelation of God to reveal it. So he is talking about things that are a mystery to the human mind, but things that he wants them to understand, and so now he's revealing it to them. And he said, it's been given to you to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God is God's sphere of authority upon the earth. Now, of course, God is, the, is in control of the whole earth. But when we talk about God's sphere of authority on the earth, which represents his kingdom, we're talking about all those upon the earth who have bowed the knee to him as their king. Those who willingly have received the Lord as the king over their life, they recognize that they belong to him. He made them. He has got a, a standard that he wants them to live by, 
uh, it's righteous, it's holy, it's the right way to live, and so on. It's what honors him. And so they bow the knee to that, and they live for him, and they seek to do his will. That's the kingdom of God. Now you say, well, wait a minute, that wasn't a mystery in the Old Testament. You said that Jesus was revealing something that was, was formerly hidden. I mean, the, the kingdom of God on the earth, the millennial kingdom, that's something that the Old Testament saints knew about. I mean, Isaiah writes about it, chapter 11, chapter 35. It was the hope of every Jew that someday Messiah would come and establish a kingdom. So I don't get it. Well, how is this a mystery? They knew about the kingdom, but they didn't know about certain aspects of the kingdom that were hidden, and he's now revealing. Number one, that when the Messiah finally came, he would be rejected by his own people. That was something they didn't have any idea about. They always believed that Messiah was going to bring the kingdom when he came. It never dawned on them that when he did come, they would reject him as a nation, which was happening as Jesus was speaking. Secondly, that there would be a vast period of time that would elapse between the Messiah's coming and when he would eventually establish his kingdom upon the earth. We've been waiting about 2,000 years, haven't we? I mean, they, they always thought it was going to be immediate. Messiah comes, establishes the kingdom, here we go. They didn't realize it was a mystery to them that when Messiah came, he would be rejected and that it would be a long space of time before the kingdom was eventually set up. Number three, even though the kingdom would not come outwardly and visibly for many, many years, it would still come immediately inwardly and spiritually to all those who are living at that time and who are living right now as they open their hearts to Jesus Christ what is the kingdom of God it's wherever Jesus is worshiped as king so if you open your heart to Christ which we all have as believers and have received him into our hearts as our Lord and King the kingdom of God has come in us it's inside of us and the joy and the blessings that we enjoy individually in our lives, in our hearts primarily, that's the kingdom of God in a very small way in our lives, inwardly and spiritually. Someday, outwardly and physically, yes, when Jesus returns again. But the kingdom of God has not, you know, just because the Jews rejected him and the literal kingdom didn't come at that time and it won't come for many years, we, we think it's coming very soon, but the kingdom of God still came to anybody, even back then, who opened their heart to the king. The nation rejected him, yes. But many received him. And he took his rightful place on the throne of their hearts as king over their lives, and the kingdom of God came inwardly. That's a mystery form of the kingdom that they didn't realize. Something that God totally kept from them. That the kingdom wasn't just going to be an outward thing. It was going to be an inward spiritual reality to all who would receive the king into their hearts. And finally... All those who would receive the king into their hearts, they would become members of the kingdom. We call it the church on the earth. Now, the church is made up of both visible and invisible. We are all part of the invisible church. What does that mean? It means we're part of the body of Christ. And hopefully, by the way we live, we give people the impression that we are the children of God. They can see it in the way we live. We'll be but there's nothing that would they would look at us there's nothing that they would look at us and go wow frank he's a member of the kingdom there's nothing that you know there's no halo you know there's no you know glowing green k 
uh, on our chest, you know, it's, it, we're just, it's invisible, okay? We're members of the body of Christ. Now, here's the thing. There is the invisible church, which are all the people of God in the body of Christ, and then there's the visible church. The visible church is buildings and things on corners in every community, which has people that attend that are members, per se, of that church. Not every member of the visible church is a member of the invisible church, right? Not every person that goes to church is a genuine Christian. And I would hope that every member, every member of the invisible church is a member of a visible church because we're not to forsake the fellowship of the saints. But here's the thing. Satan is going to try to pervert this kingdom of God, which is going to be on the earth inwardly in people's hearts, which they will come together as the people of God in form of visible entity. But Satan is going to try to thwart that. He's going to try to corrupt it. And Jesus is going to go on to explain. This is all part of the, the mystery of the kingdom. That he is going to, Satan is going to try to join the church. And he has joined the church. And even though the church is going to grow from a very small beginning and become relatively large, Satan has also joined the church and caused an aberrant kind of a growth. Something that was, it's abnormal. As Jesus is going to point out, it's like cancer invading your body. Cancer causes certain cells to begin to grow and grow and multiply, and they just kind of take over. It's not a good thing. That kind of growth is not good. It's evil. It's bad. It's abnormal. It's unhealthy. And so Satan couldn't beat us, so he joined us. Jesus wants to warn them that, you know what, the church is his body on the earth. But Satan is going to come and sow the tares among the wheat. He is going to come and try to pervert what God has made. It's through the church that the word of God comes, the gospel, the light. It's through the church that the blessings flow to the world, the body of Christ, right? Because we are the people of God. We are his body. Even as Jesus went around doing good and, 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 and loving people and, and healing the sick and all kinds of other things, we as his body now are, are an extension of him and we are taking up his ministry as he has left it for us. So we are the channel through which blessings flow to the earth. Satan comes along and perverts that because he wants to keep people from the blessings, the truth, all right? Keep that in mind as Jesus progresses through these parables. But they come to him in verse 10 and says, you know, Lord, what about this parable? We're not quite sure we get it. It's not much they did get until after the day of Pentecost. But he said to them in verse 13, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all parables? From that, I infer that Jesus is saying, this is the prototype, guys. This is the prototype. If you understand this parable and the imagery and what these things represent, you can apply those to any parable because something called expositional constancy, this is the prototype. So what things stand for, what they mean in this parable, seems to be the key to all parables. And in this parable, he said, a sower sows what? The word. The word. The seed is the word. Of course, I think in Matthew's gospel, he said the, uh, he goes out and sows seed in his field, and he said the field is the world. So in the Bible, in parables, the field, if there's a field mentioned, it's always a type of the world. And so he said the, the sower sows the word. And these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. 
When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown where? In their hearts. So the soil represents different kinds of hearts. The seed is the word. The sower is Jesus at this point, but later on his disciples and, of course, all of us. Anyone who goes out spreading the gospel, the word of God, we are sowers, and we spread it everywhere we go, or we should, and it's going to fall on different kinds of hearts. Some hearts it's going to fall on is very hard. That's what the wayside soil represents. Very hard, impenitent hearts. And you've met people like this. I know I have. Their, their indifference to the gospel is almost frightening. They have absolutely no hunger for spiritual things. I mean, even before I got saved, I was interested in spiritual things. Okay, Most people have some interest in spiritual things even before they get saved. Then I've met some people, I'm not kidding you, it's like, it's like bouncing the word off of concrete. I mean, they have absolutely no desire to hear anything spiritual. These are the ones that the seed lands on their hearts, Heart is so hard, can't penetrate. Finally, the Satan just comes and snatches it away, and they no longer even think about it or ponder it. Verse 16, these likewise are the ones sown on stony ground. Now, the stony ground was the what? Kind of a shallow. So this is a shallow heart. Shallow heart. And uh, these are the ones sown on stony ground, who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness. Now, Remember the illustration of the shallow soil. Roots start to go down, can't go down very far. All the energy is redirected upwards. So these things shoot up quickly. And you think, wow, what a hardy plant. It's dwarfing everything else around it. See, what you don't realize is no depth there. That's why everything is going so well. But, there's, but that's ultimately going to lead to its downfall. It's all a quick thing. And it's going to eventually wither when the sun comes up. And Jesus goes on to say, And they have no root in themselves, so they en- so endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. There are people who are very emotionally oriented. Life is all about finding some new high, you know, some emotional fix. And they, and they find their way into churches all the time. And they're just looking for something because they're just emotional people. And they will often gravitate to highly emotional churches where there's a lot of excitement and energy, uh, not often a lot of teaching. But, 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 you know, they hear about Jesus, you know, and, it's, and they're kind of stirred. It's kind of exciting to think about. And, yeah, you know, and they get swept up into the, uh, into the emotion of the worship or some charismatic speaker. And so the invitation comes. They come walking down to the front. And I've seen it. They're weeping, they're just emotionally just, and you're thinking, wow, I used to think, I don't think anymore, I used to think, wow, the Holy Spirit has really gotten a hold of this one. Look at this, this is amazing, and I'm focusing on the one who's weeping and just carrying on and just overcome with the emotion of it all, and, and, and I'm thinking, this, now this one, you know, this is, wow, this is what conversions ought to be, you know. And they accept the Lord, and I'm sure you've seen them. They are just at church all the time. I mean, from day one, they got the Jesus shirt on. They got the 50-pound Bible under their arm. They got the bumper stickers all over the car. I mean, everywhere they go, they're honking for Jesus, and, and they're sharing with everybody, and they're at church all the time, and they're, they're reading the Word, and you're thinking, this, I'm convicted. 
I'm feeling convicted by this person. I should have so much, you know, energy for the Lord. But see, there's no depth in it. They're feeding off of the emotion. It's like when a person find somebody new they're dating they find somebody new and there's all that emotion that comes you know with with that new relationship and they love that feeling but after a while that feeling goes doesn't it but for these people who are emotion junkies they feed on that emotion so they cut this person loose and they go look for somebody else because they're not in love with the person they're in love with love they're in love with an emotion and the same issue with christianity some people don't really want to be married to Jesus with all the highs and lows that come with any relationship. They want the emotion. And so initially they just get fired up for the Lord and they're excited and they're just feeding off this because they feel great. But after a while, tribulation arises. Persecution. Well, that doesn't feel so good. I don't like the way that feels. And because there's no real depth, because they're not really in it for Jesus and for the love of Christ, they're in it for the love of self, really. You can't, you know, if Jesus hadn't told us this, we, we might be prone to, to read them all wrong, as I have done, even though I did read this. You have to realize that sometimes it's not a love for Jesus that's motivated. Paul said the love of Christ constrains me. I'm sorry to say for a lot of people, it's the love of the feeling that motivates them. But in time, they wind up falling away because of persecution, or tribulation for the word's sake. You're a Jesus, you're a Jesus freak. Oh, you know, it's people start making fun out of them at work. Oh, this isn't what I, no, I didn't sign up for this. And so they, they, they're gone. And you, it, it, isn't it something? It's like as quickly as they came on the scene, they're gone. Elvis is like, hey, what happened to so-and-so? They're gone. That's it. It's like on the 4th of July when you go out to see the fireworks and this fire, you know, they, they, they shoot this rocket up and it bursts on the scene with a big, glorious burst, right? But just as quickly, it's gone and nothing but ashes fall to the ground. And you see that over and over. You spend, you know, a, a half hour, 45 minutes, watch them shoot these rockets up and they light up the sky momentarily and then that's it. And after it's all said and done and all the fireworks are over with, look up in the sky and you see the stars that have been shining for thousands of years, steady. Not as bright, not as spectacular as the fireworks. But you know what? God wants steady. He wants us to finish the race. Not to light up the sky with a momentary burst of excitement and, and, and zeal, and then we're gone. And I've seen them. They're gone as quickly as they, as they seem to appear. Now, verse 18. These are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word, and the cares of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire, desires for other things entering in, choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. These are people who come to church, pray to receive Christ, but they just can't seem to let go of the world. And as I was reading this today, again, refreshing, just kind of meditating, I thought of the rich young ruler. Perfect example we're talking about. He knew he was missing something. Came to Jesus and said, you know, good master, what, am I, what do I need to do to, to, to have everlasting life? Jesus said, keep the commandments. Not that that was the way to get to heaven, but he thought he was a good person. 
well, let's see if you're really a good person. Do you keep the commandments? Well, he wasn't, didn't realize he didn't, but he, so he said, yeah, I kept, kept them all from my youth. What do I still lack? Realized, he realized, even though he was moral, religious, he was a ru uh, ruler of a synagogue, so he was a religious man, a moral man, rich, young. He had everything going for him, but he was empty still. He comes to Jesus. He recognizes that he needs so something's missing. Jesus points him to himself and says, well, you know what? The real problem is you got too much wealth. Give it away, and then you'll be able to follow me unhindered. Now, there are people who are wealthy who can follow Jesus. This guy, his money was in the throne of his heart. It needed to go because he couldn't put Jesus on the throne of his heart and use his wealth to glorify God. His wealth was a God to him. So Jesus put his finger on the thing that was keeping him from really following after him. He said, it's got to go. And he went away sorrowful, for he had great wealth. You know, he, he wanted Jesus, but he didn't want to give up his other gods. And Jesus will not take his place on a throne in your life when you have two or three other gods on other thrones in your life. If he isn't Lord of all, he's not going to be Lord at all. And so we see some like this. They come and they receive Christ, but you see, they, they just can't let go. They can't let go of the world. They can't make a full commitment. And eventually, the pull of the world is too strong, and they want too much to have things, and so they wind up just walking away from Christ. And, of course, the last one, which needs really no explanation, verse 20. But these are the ones sown on good ground, who those who hear the word accept it, and bear fruit some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. This is good soil. And what is the sign of good soil? What is the point of agriculture? Foliage or fruit? Who cares about the foliage? The whole point of agriculture is to bear fruit. Now, some want to say that, okay, this parable is talking about somebody who flat out rejects the gospel. That's the hard soil. But then you have two people who receive the word, become Christians, but they stay kind of worldly, the shallow and the thorny soil. And then you have some who are really on fire and committed and bear a lot of fruit, the good soil. And you know, I can see that, except when I try to take that interpretation out in the real world, do you think three-quarters of the people that you witness to wind up receiving the Lord? No, Jesus said he called his followers a little flock. The Greek word is micros, which we word micro from, very small. He said, he said, enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many go in that gate. But narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way that leads to life, and only a few find it. And I think the whole point of this parable was to, to encourage them to keep on sowing the seed, even though it seems like most people are going to reject it. You're going to have people that look good for a while. They're going to be gone. But don't lose heart. There's good soil out there when you hit it. The Holy Spirit will take it from there. Well, I shouldn't say that. The Holy Spirit is involved in the whole process. But the Holy Spirit will cause the growth. And you'll see growth 30, 60, 100-fold as they go out and spread the seed. And then they go out and spread the seed, and the gospel is going to spread that way. But there's good soil out there, so don't lose heart. And I think he was just trying to encourage them, because he knew how prone they were going to be to discouragement, even as we are, right? 
you share your heart out with people. Some of them look at you and laugh at you and walk away. Some of them seem interested. So you get excited. You give them more tracts, more information. Give them a Bible. They come to church. They walk forward. They receive the Lord. You're rejoicing. I don't even rejoice anymore. I want to see the fruit now, okay? People say, aren't you excited? Three people came forward. No, I'm not that excited. I'll be excited when I see fruit. Then I'll know three genuine believers. You know, three people really get saved. But you see these people come forward and excited and they're, oh, it's, you're having these wonderful conversations. And then pretty soon after a few weeks or a few months, they don't want to talk to you anymore. They're not returning your phone calls. They want nothing to do with God. It's, it can be discouraging. Jesus says, hang in there. I'm telling you beforehand, it's like that. So you don't get discouraged. He goes on to say, Is a lamp brought to be put under a basket or under a bed? Is it not to be set on a lampstand? Now, these, these lamps were just little clay dishes with oil and a wick. I've got one in my office that somebody gave me. It's like a reproduction of an oil-burning lamp, just a little clay thing. It has a wick and a pour a little oil, okay? Of course, as the lamp gives off light, the oil is consumed. You have to keep replenishing the oil. What is oil a type of in the Holy, in the, in the Holy Spirit? Well, there you go. Right? <laughs> oil in the Scriptures is a type of the Holy Spirit. And we believers are a lamp. But we need to be constantly filled with the Holy Spirit to keep the light burning. And the light, of course, is the truth. You can live the truth. You can proclaim the truth. But if you don't keep being... And that's what Paul said in Ephesians 5. He said, be filled with the Holy Spirit. In the Greek, it's be being continually filled with the Holy Spirit. Because we need to constantly be filled. Now, Jesus said, look, you don't light a lamp and stick it under a bushel or under your bed. The whole point of a lamp being lit is to give light to everyone else in the house. The whole point for God lighting our lives with his truth and bringing us into salvation was not that we could hide out and enjoy it all to ourselves. It's to go out into the world and it's to let the light shine. There's a Somebody wrote an article a few months or a year ago uh, where they described Christianity, how it's uh, become a subculture. How that we have all our own entertainment. We have, you know, churches that have their own... I'm not putting these things down, by the way. I'm just saying this is what it is. Churches that have mini malls, you know, uh, they have coffee shops, they have food courts, they have, you don't really have to go anywhere else. You can do, you can just stay right there and interact with Christians all the time and enjoy coffee together and entertainment, church services, you can shop, it's wonderful. The problem is we're not interacting with the world. We're hiding our light under a giant bushel, which is just the church building itself. When Jesus said, God didn't light your life to have you hide out. It's about going out, letting your light shine by the way you live, first of all, and then by the way you talk. As people see a difference in your life and they approach you and say, what's different about you? You can say, hey, let me tell you what Jesus has done for me. It's all about him. He goes on to say, for there is nothing hidden which will not be revealed, nor has anything been kept secret, but that it should come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. The Greek actually says God has not hidden anything that he doesn't fully intend to reveal, which tells us that the Lord hides things sometimes. Now, here's the thing. You've got to understand the context here. As of this point, 
Jesus didn't reveal everything he wanted them to know. In fact, he said the night before his crucifixion, there is many other things that I want to tell you, but you're not ready to receive them yet. But when the Holy Spirit comes, the Spirit of truth, he will reveal all things to you. And so it's a progressive revelation. Of course, once revelation was penned, that was it. The canon of scripture was complete. We have it all now. That's not to say that God won't speak to your heart individually through prophecy and tell you maybe something he wants for your life individually. But with regard to doctrine, we have it all. So God, as we sit here tonight, has revealed it all. Okay, He did hide some things because they weren't ready to receive everything at that time. But when the Holy Spirit came, they became spirit-filled people. Then the Spirit of God went ahead and revealed the rest of it. But the idea is that there are some things that, um, even though God has revealed them, we haven't really understood them. That's what growing in Christ is all about. That's what being a student of the Word is all about, right? Even though God has revealed it officially already, maybe we are still ignorant. I'm still learning things all the time. We're always learning. Now, once you learn something that God has revealed, now you are obligated to live it and to share it. Don't keep it to yourself. Once you grow to a point where you're learning new things, you are obligated now to apply it, to do it, and to share it. And Jesus went on to say, um, verse 24, Take heed what you hear. With the same measure you use, it will be measured to you, and, you will, and to you who hear, more will be given. Guys, listen to this. This is very important. Take heed what you hear. He was dealing with some people who were so hard-hearted they didn't want to hear at all. And so he began to hide the truth in parables. But to those that did want to hear the truth, he was telling them, you need to be discerning. Because the devil can work through a hard heart or he can work through a gullible, open heart. What am I saying? I'm saying that, you know what? We have to be discerning. We have to be discriminating. We just can't open our minds up to everything and anything that seems to have some wisdom attached to it or that somebody says came to them from God as a revelation. This is a problem today in the church. There's a lot of people in the church who are not discerning anymore. And you know why they're not discerning? Because they have bought into a spiritual case of AIDS. So what do you mean? Well, what is AIDS? It's a disease that once it invades the body, what is the first thing it does? The first thing it does is it attacks your immune system. It, it, uh, it shuts off the body's immune system. The body cannot fight invading infections anymore or parasites. AIDS doesn't really kill you. It just makes your body so susceptible to disease that you finally wind up succumbing to you know, pneumonia or, or, or some kind of a virus that you could usually uh, fight off. But, but it, just, it just robs your, you of your, your defense system is just taken away. When you tell people in the body of Christ, don't challenge teachings that claim to be from God. Don't test the prophets to see if they are speaking from God. Whoever says, thus says the Lord, you just received that because you should not touch God's anointed. You give the body of Christ a spiritual case of AIDS. It, it can no longer discriminate. You've robbed it of its ability to, to test things according, against the word of God. And now you're opening it up to any sick spiritual virus that Satan wants to pump into it. That's why we see so many, uh, that so many churches sick and weak and, and, and have no clue about what 
you know, as truth anymore because they've been so uh, attacked by all kinds of false doctrines. As Paul said, winds of doctrine blowing through churches all the time. We're not to let that happen. We're to be discriminating. So Jesus, take heed what you hear. <laughs> I heard a story that John MacArthur told years ago. He and another guy were traveling somewhere to a speaking engagement. Uh, and they were traveling through the south by car and um, through a farming community, you know, it's a small town, and they saw as they were passing by the one farmhouse that the woman apparently sold quilts that she had handmade because she had, had hanging on the fence and had a sign, quilts for sale. And John said, my wife loves quilts, and I was looking for something, get her something for her birthday. So I, I said, let's pull over. So he goes into this house, and, and she's got, she, she said, um, uh, he said, we're here, we'd like to, to see some quilts, I'd like to buy one for my wife. And so uh, she said, oh, it's great, you know, and so she runs in the other room and starts getting some together. As she's gone, her husband's sitting in the chair watching uh, a religious program. And as John happened to look over at the screen, he noticed that this was a program that was completely off the wall. And so he started to talk to this guy about it, and Oh, he says, yeah, I watch pretty much, I watch a lot of different uh, shows. I, I support a lot of different ministries. In fact, every time I watch something, if they ask, if anyone wants free literature, just write in, I write in. He had, he had stuff from Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Adventists, full-blown cults, some groups that were quasi-Christian but very into some other bizarre, aberrant things. He had a patchwork faith. He wasn't discriminating what he was listening. He wasn't taking heed what he was hearing. Now she comes out with a quilt that she was pretty uh, proud of. But he said, you know, I have to tell you, I, I didn't say this to her, but it was, was really ugly. It seemed like just a bunch, a hodgepodge bunch of different pieces of cloth that she had sewn together. There was no color scheme. It was just kind of loud and gaudy. I did find something, though, that she had made that was very tasteful, and I bought it for my wife. But as I was leaving there, I couldn't help but think that her husband's faith was just like her quilt. It was just piecemeal, all together with all kinds of... Just, he just took a, a, a smorgasbord of different ideas that he kind of knit together, and that was his faith. And Jesus says, you know what? Satan can get you with a hard heart. He can get you with a heart and a mind that's too open. I've used this before, but some people are so open-minded, their brains have fallen out. <laughs> They just, believe, they just believe anything, you know? And we have to be... Paul said something in Philippians 1 that I really think is a needed prayer for the church today. He said, I pray that your love would abound and also your discernment. Because Paul rightly understood to have love without discernment is a dangerous thing. And I know Christians who are good-hearted people, very loving people, they, but the problem is they love everybody. They love the Benny Hens. They love the Kenneth Copelands, the Kenneth Hagans. They love the Creflo Dollars. They love them all. Many of these are the enemies of the cross of Christ. And they're teaching false doctrine. We should never love a wolf. Only love the truth. So he said, take heed what you hear. With the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. And to you who hear, more will be given. In other words, take heed what you hear, but... But take in, too. Be discriminating, but be hungry for truth. If you're hungry for truth, the same measure that you take in, God will bless you with insight. Because he goes on to say in verse 25, 
For whoever has, to him more will be given. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. And the context again is truth, guys. If you're hungry for the truth and you, and you devour it with a, a, a real appetite, but you're discriminating, you're discerning, you don't just listen to everything, but you, 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 you really you know, stick to what you know is really biblical truth, but you are hungry for it to the point where you're always devouring it. That blesses the heart of God and he will, he will multiply back to you insights. He will multiply back to you all kinds of wonderful benefits. But if you have the truth and do nothing with it, he'll take away from you that which even you have. Something to think about, really. Then he goes on to say, verse 26, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground and should sleep by night and rise by day and the seed should sprout and grow. He himself does not know how. For the earth yields crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, after that the full grain in the head. But when the grain ripens, immediately he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. It's, it's, it's a mystery, really, how things grow. You scatter this dead-looking seed on the ground. You water it. It begins to work its way to the soil. All of a sudden it dies, and when it dies, it splits sends out shoots that become roots. They go down. The stalk goes for upward. I mean, it's amazing, right? Eventually it bears fruit. I mean, the farmer scatters the seed and then he basically, you know, just lets th things take their natural course. He sleeps, he rises, he forgets about it really. He waters it and keeps it cultivated. But, but the idea is he doesn't do anything else to make it grow. It just happens. And the growth spreads. That's how it is in our lives, first of all, with the Word of God. You know, we take in the Word of God, and we don't think anything's happening. We go on about our business, we rise, we sleep. But in time, we notice things are happening. Things are changing. Our attitudes are changing. You know, the way we look at things, our character is changing. It's an amazing thing to see, isn't it? We get, we get a little impatient at times because we're not growing as fast as we would like. But we have to say, as we've been a Christian now for five, ten years, you look back, okay, maybe you're not yet what you want to be, but you certainly are not all that you once were. There has been growth. One of you guys sent me an email, good email, about somebody who was putting down preaching. Uh, I take exception to that. They were putting down preaching. I guess they were a church goer, and they decided to stop going to church. What's the point? I can't remember a message. I can't remember any of the messages anyways. And that's why he thought it was just, he was justified in not going to church anymore. And a person he was sharing this with said, you know what, I can't remember what I had for dinner a week ago or a month ago or 10 years ago. But if it wasn't for those meals that I had all those days and months and years ago, I wouldn't be around today. So even though I can't remember them, Something, I've benefited from them on a level that I'm not even aware of, but yet they have done me good. The same is true with hearing the Word of God, hearing messages. You might, you might not remember you know, what a message was three weeks ago, but something from that message God may have planted in your heart, and it has grown and it has produced something good. So keep, keep coming. Keep listening to the Word. And of course, on a worldwide scale, as we go out and sow the Word, we don't know what God's going to do with it. We don't even know the kind of hearts it's falling on because we can't see the heart. So we just are faithful to share. And who knows, some of the seeds that you've planted, they haven't gone on to impact whole communities, 
whole cultures possibly is you planted the word in somebody's heart who took it back to some part of the world because they were just a traveler and they began to share it and all of a sudden there's a group of Christians that are meeting somewhere and you have no idea what's going on but God sees and this, is, this happens over and over again until finally the kingdom of God on the earth is ripe it's time for Jesus to come and harvest those who are his bring them into the kingdom and the others, the weeds, the tares, they're going to be cut down and cast into the fire. Now, another parable. Now, of course, Matthew gives seven of these. Mark only picks up on two. Then he said, now this is where we get into this. He just got done saying that by planting the seed, just do just sow. And let the Holy Spirit take care of, you know, how it's going to germinate and grow and how it's going to multiply you don't even know what's going on, but the seed that you've sown is out there doing its work. It's, it's producing. This is where Satan tries to come in now. Okay, The church has been infiltrated with tares. Even though the church has grown phenomenally over the last 2,000 years, it's grown a lot more than God intended it to because Satan infiltrated it, and the growth has now become aberrant. It's become... Um, corrupted and this is what this parable I believe is talking about he said verse 30 to what shall we liken the kingdom of God or with what parable shall we picture it it is like a mustard seed which when it's sown on the ground is smaller than all seeds on earth but when it is sown it grows up and becomes greater than all herbs and shoots out large branches Matthew tells it becomes a great tree so that the birds of the air may nest under its shade. Now, let me give you the standard liberal interpretation of this. The standard liberal interpretation of those who are liberal theologians is pretty much that this represents how that the kingdom of God is going to start small, just with a few handful of disciples. But it's going to grow and it's going to grow and it's going to grow, become a giant tree, a shade tree that's going to give comfort and shade to the entire world, all kinds of birds are going to lodge in its branches, missionary organizations, and so on and so forth. Very nice picture, right? But in parables, there's something called expositional constancy. When something is used in a parable once, it usually remains constant throughout all parables. In the first parable we studied, which became the prototype, the parable of the sower, what did the birds represent? The seed that fell on the wayside, and the birds of the air came and ate. Who were the birds? The devil and his demons. So why should that all of a sudden change now into something good? First of all, a mustard seed doesn't grow into a great tree, guys. I'm not a farmer, but at least I, I know that much. A mustard seed grows into a bush, not a great tree. Something abnormal is taking place here. Now, if we couple this with an, a parallel parable that Jesus gave in Matthew, the parable of the leaven, the kingdom of God is like a woman who took leaven and hid it in three measures of meal until all, the whole was leavened. Again, the liberal interpretation is yes, just like leaven will, will, will permeate through a, 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 some dough and cause the whole thing to rise and to grow. That's the gospel's effect that's going to have on the world. The church is going to grow, 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 grow. Only problem is leaven in the Bible is always synonymous with sin and evil. Every time it's used in the New Testament, it's negative. Paul even said in Galatians, guys, you got a sky living among you in absolute out-and-out sin? Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Deal with this. Get rid of it. Purge it out. 
you know, you might be a new lump. I like that. You know, you guys are just a bunch of lump heads. You got this sin, you got this sin going on. Get rid of it. It's going to spread. Of course, leaven is that which it spreads, but it uh, it's corruption. It's, it it uh, that's what uh, leaven is. It, it's it's a putrefaction really of the dough. But it's can be healthy when you're making bread, but uh, it's not good on a spiritual level because the Bible says leaven is always synonymous with sin and evil. So the idea is that. The kingdom of God on the earth is a wonderful thing. It's the church of Jesus Christ. It's his body. It's invisible, although all of his people gravitate to or are a part of visible church bodies. But in a visible church, here comes the devil sowing the terrors. So in any given church, you have the true side by side with the false. And of course, remember now, the church of Jesus Christ did grow phenomenally in the first three centuries mainly because of persecution. As the church was persecuted, I mean, she went through some... You know why? Because it remained pure. He talked about the, 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 the seed that fell on the shallow soil. And because of persecution, this, this guy didn't hang around. Well, that's the idea. Persecution is never enjoyable, but it always has a purifying effect. It weeds out the uncommitted, the counterfeits. They don't want to hang around when there's persecution. So all that's left are the truly committed. And the truly committed under persecution shine and they grow and they share and their very lifestyle being martyred for their faith causes other people to see that these people are willing to die for this and they check it out and they get saved. So the church over the first three centuries grew phenomenally. Then Satan decided if I can't beat them, I'll join them. And so it worked in the heart of an emperor named Constantine who gave him a false conversion experience and Constantine was the emperor of Rome at that time in the fourth century and what he did was he, he thought he got saved I don't think he did and so what he did was he made Christianity the state religion Christians came out of the catacombs no longer persecuted given the robes of authority for this of the state and the church and the state married each other and whenever the world and the church get together the church always is the one that suffers and did the church grow then? It really took off. Why? Because Constantine passed a law. All Romans had to become Christians. So all his pagan soldiers had to go through the ritual of baptism and pronounce themselves Christians. They were about as Christian you know, as the devil and his demons. So all of a sudden now, the church was growing pretty well, but now all of a sudden it becomes the state religion, and it just takes off like crazy. Well, you want to be on the emperor's good side, don't you? So... I'm going to become a Christian, even if I don't accept Christ. Now it becomes a great tree, and of course, all kinds of demonic entities have lodged in the branches of the church today. You have the World Council of Churches that supports terrorist activities all over the world. You've got some of the most perverted, uh, aberrant, uh, uh, sick things coming out of the organized church today. It's amazing. You've got, you know, dating homosexuals, marrying homosexuals. You've got all kinds of horrible things going on. The church is not what Jesus Christ intended it to be. But he told us that. But God always has a faithful remnant. Even in Israel, had this nation of two or three million, but only a few were really faithful. The rest were just counterfeit Jews. They weren't really God's people. Just like today, the church is a big thing. Billion people worldwide. How many of those are really genuine Christians? I would imagine Jesus had a micro, just a small little group compared to that billion. But don't lose heart because the work of God is being done 
through those who are genuinely his people. Verse 33, and with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. So those that were his disciples, he didn't just didn't keep pushing down their throats truth. He gave them time to digest it, assimilate it, meditate on it, understand it, and then they were ready to receive some more. Sometimes we take the fire hose approach with our kids, you know, <laughs> stick the fire hose in their mouth and turn it on and just load them up with scriptures and all, and, and they're drowning in scriptures, and we're thinking that's the way to go. Just keep, keep stuffing it in there. And, you know, it's, sometimes less is more. It's good to teach your kids scriptures, don't get me wrong. But I, I heard a story of one father who really believed that scripture memorization was the, really the way to go with his son, who was a young guy. And so his father worked a lot, but he had Saturdays off. And so um, instead of taking the kid out playing baseball, he was, and the young guy liked to work with his hands, he liked motors and things. Instead of working on the car with them and, and using the opportunity to talk to them about spiritual things, they were just kind of bonding together. The father thought the best way to handle this is to spend four or five hours on a Saturday just memorizing scripture with him. He just kept pumping scriptures in this kid. And the kid got to be a certain age, he just rebelled against the whole thing. Walked away completely. And the sad thing about it is that the person who knew this father said the sad thing about it is that if you talk to that father, you get the impression that he felt just another couple of scriptures would have kept this kid in the fold. Just another couple more. See, we have to be sensitive. You know, medicine is good if you're sick. If you take the whole bottle at one time, you'll probably die. you you got to take little doses, okay? The truth is like that too. Sometimes just little doses of the truth. And as a person comes along, they start thinking about that, a little more. Bring them along. That's where the Holy Spirit has to come in. Don't give them, don't fight the urge to just dump everything on them at one time. You scare them away. They can't deal with it. Jesus wasn't like that. But without a parable, he did not, did not speak to them. And when they were alone, he explained all things with his disciples. So he wasn't trying to hide truth from them. And so they had some private Bible studies together. On the same day when evening had come, he said to them, let us cross over the Sea of Galilee, to the other side. Notice that. Let us cross over. You think it's important that we take the Lord at His word? I think so. So Jesus said, let us, let us cross over. Now when they had left the multitude, they took Him along in the boat as He was, and other little boats were also with Him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. We stopped there. Um, a few years ago, there was such a drought in Israel that the Sea of Galilee uh, had shrunk so much down to a point it had never gotten to before. And they saw something buried in the mud that had been buried for you know, thousands of years. It was a, a boat from the first century. Now, the composition of the mud had some kind of composition that actually preserved the wood. It was a big thing. Archaeological Review had a picture of it. It was put on display. And it was a, a perfect representation of a, probably a boat like we're talking about right now. And it was about 20 foot long, 7 foot wide with a 4 foot draft. And in the back, the stern had a shelf, okay, because they used to drag the nets up and they would do things with it. So it's like a shelf. And underneath this shelf was a compartment 
that a person could crawl up and go to sleep if they wanted to, and they would keep uh, a 50-pound or a 100-pound sack of sand in this compartment they called the ballast pillow. And so it shed a lot of light on this scripture because that's apparently what it was. Jesus was curled up under this ledge in the stern asleep on this ballast pillow, which is, was a bag of sand. Now the storm is raging, okay, and of course that part of the world, storms can come on the Sea of Galilee just in no time because it's 600 feet below sea level and the cold air from Mount Hermon, which is 9,000 feet high, rushes down the valley. When it crosses the warm air of the, of the Galilee Basin, it collides, and of course storms come out of nowhere, and they can be pretty intense. Uh, one storm several years ago, waves were 15 feet high, crashing onto the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and it was wiping out some of the hotels that were built uh, near the, the sea. And it gets pretty violent in the, on the Sea of Galilee. And so this great windstorm arose. It was not a rainstorm. It was a windstorm. And the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. The disciples, of course, were working like crazy to bail out this vessel because it was taken on water. It looked like it was going under. And uh, he was asleep. And finally they came to him and says, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, was that a stupid question or what? And I can say that because I've asked the same stupid question. There are times when I'm crying out to the Lord, the, the boat's filling with water. It looks like I'm going under. The circumstances got the best of me. I'm crying out to the Lord, Lord, help me. Don't you care that I'm going under here? And it's, 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 it's the same thing. The Lord must, what he must put up with, with us. <laughs> you know, we look at the disciples and we shake our heads and go, those blockheads. I mean, didn't they have a clue? And the Lord says, yeah, just like you. Because oftentimes you don't have a clue either. And I mean, it's like, Lord, how many times have I said something? You said cross over. They weren't going to go under. You've promised it. How could the boat go under with Jesus on board? Is Jesus on board in my life? How is my life going to go really under if Jesus is on board? I mean, he might take me into some storms once in a while to teach me some things, but I'm not going to go under. But they thought they were going to drown. And so they said, don't you care that we're perishing? And he arose and rebuked the wind and the sea, which says to us, there, this might not have been a natural storm. You don't rebuke inanimate objects like wind and waves. You tend to rebuke beings or people. There could have been something demonic going on here. We don't know. But he rebuked the wind and the sea and said, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was great calm. And then he rebukes the disciples. He said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? Actually, the Greek says, How is it that you, haven't, you have not yet have any faith? All the things that he had done with them, all the things that they had seen, all the times he had been there at the last minute to rescue them in some situation. And the same is true with our lives. We think we're going under. We cry out to the Lord. And we, we say stupid things like, you don't care about me. If you cared about me, I wouldn't be in this thing. We say dumb things. And then he comes to our rescue and he, you know, solves the problem or gets us out of the affliction. And then he lovingly says, when are you going to learn to trust me? Why is it that you have no faith yet? You know, I was talking to the guys at our men's retreat this last weekend. And my study was on the life of Solomon. For a wise man, he did some pretty stupid things. 
over the course of his life. But at the end of his life, he came back to God after walking away for many years and said some things that we were talking about. And it just led me to, to, uh, to, to, to say to the guys, you know, as I've gotten older, I've gotten more contemplative. You know, I'm, I, you know David said, I, I once was young and now I'm old. I'm not old yet, but I'm a lot closer to old age than I am to my youth. And when you get to be older, you start looking back, you know. And as a young man, I'll tell you, I, I'd like to tell you I always trusted God in every situation. I'd like to sit there and tell you that I, I'm a real man of faith and I never wavered once in my faith, but I, it's not true. And there were times where I'll tell you we were in desperate straits financially. There were times, I'm not kidding you, we, we literally could not rub two nickels together. I used to have a practice where I would take all the change that I would get whenever I bought something, I'd take the change, and I didn't have a change compartment in my car, so i just throw it in the glove box. Most of it was pennies. I mean, it was more than a few times I was digging pennies out of there to buy a gallon of milk. And you know what? I, I worried a lot. How are we going to make it? I prayed. But you know what? God always came through. He always came through. And I look back now and I think, Lord, how much time did I waste worrying instead of just trusting? And in fact, didn't you bring those storms into our lives to teach us faith? And yet I still blew it. And it's taken me so long to learn these lessons. And Jesus, I'm sure, sometimes looks at me and goes, Phil, by now you should have such faith. Why don't you have greater faith? How come you don't fully and completely trust me yet? I don't know. It's stupid. It really is. And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? And they were finding out who he really was. Hopefully we will find out, even though we know who he really is, we will learn it experientially. I know he's the Son of God. I know he's all-powerful. I know he can do anything. Why do I doubt those things in my own life? I need to learn those things.